Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of HuffPost's So That Happened is brought to you by ZipRecruiter.com. Today, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash happened. Use their service today and get the edge on your competitors. This episode of HuffPost's So That Happened is also brought to you by Next Issue Media. Download Next Issue Media's mobile app today and experience the pleasure of being able to read the best magazines on the stands whenever and wherever you and your mobile device want. This podcast contains explicit language. Caitlin, the internet's girlfriend. Caitlin, Caitlin, girlfriend to the internet. Caitlin's very nice. That's what I'm saying. Like if the internet could dream up a girlfriend, it would be Caitlin. If the internet could dream up someone who is like half drunk all the time and smoking on her front porch, it would be me. So that happened. This week, the 5,295 candidates all vying for the Republican nomination gathered in the seamiest of valleys to debate one another. I'm sorry, I meant to say attempt to confront Donald Trump on the debate stage. Yes, the reality television mogul once again took center stage, but is his act starting to wear thin now? We're joined by the Internet's own Honoree Cox for some post-game analysis about the debate. Meanwhile... Washington, D.C. is bracing for a visit from Pope Francis, or as his mother knows him, Jorge. Francis comes to America at a time when his message about income inequality is resonating, especially among liberals. But are American observers overrating the extent to which Francis is changing the Catholic Church? The Washington Examiner's Tim Carney is here to help us get Jesuitical. Finally, speaking of odd intersections of politics and religion, this week Vermont Senator and presidential aspirant Bernie Sanders brought his very liberal campaign to Liberty University, the evangelical college founded by Christian conservative warrior Jerry Falwell. Was Sanders preaching to the unconvertible, or was there perhaps a real opportunity for connection beyond the narrow band of electoral politics? Fusion's news director, Kevin Roos, joins us to discuss the significance of this event. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Arthur Delaney, Julia Craven, and Ryan Grimm. And here's what happened first. Welcome to yet another edition of So That Happened. I'm Jason Lincolns, editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. We have a pretty fantastic podcast for you today. Great, great people coming on. One great person in the studio with me is Arthur Delaney. Say hi to the folks, Arthur. Thank you for saying I'm great. You're great. You're Yeah, you're pretty fantastic. Um, our colleague Zach Carter's not here. Uh, he's in Rome, but we're making up for it by bringing us some of the best on. Today we're going to talk with uh, the Washington Examiner's Tim Carney about the upcoming papal chase that's going to happen here in the United States. We're going to have Kevin Roos uh, talk about Bernie Sanders' trip to liberty. Uh, but first, we're going to start out right now uh, with um, with my very good friend. Uh, she is a founding editor of Suck.com and probably <laughs> best known for being the founding editor of Wonkette. And she has subsequently worked for every single print magazine in America. 
Currently, <laughs> she works for the New York Times magazine and has a podcast of her own called The Brouhaha, which you should subscribe to. Anna Marie Cox joins us today. Anna, what's up? Hey. Hey, dude. Hey. Uh, did you guys get a lot of sleep last night? No. No, yeah. no sleep. No sleep for us, man. <laughs> uh, we were here pretty late because that debate was three hours long. What a long debate. They didn't leave any questions for the eight other debates that are going to happen. Um, like, legitimately didn't realize it was going to be three hours until an hour into it. Like, I don't... <laughs> a, a, lot of, realization. a lot of people had that painful realization. My colleague <laughs> Jessica Schulberg was like, wait, we're not, we're not halfway done? And I was like, no, we've got two more hours of this to go. Um, but I and they didn't even take many breaks. They, they were just no. standing there sweating. They did not. <laughs> But I wanted to start by saying I have an operating theory about Donald Trump. And it goes to what we're talking about right now, how long the debate was. Prior to the debate, Donald Trump complained on Twitter that the debate was too long, too many people on stage. I think last night, as the night went on, it proved to be a bit to his undoing. I think and better men than me have predicted Donald Trump's eventual demise and been wrong. So I'm prepared to be wrong. But there's a sense last night, I think, that air is starting to leak from the balloon. What do you guys think? Well, I I think that he definitely seemed um, the 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 more he had to talk about things that weren't other his his, his opponents or himself. <laughs> Those are his two favorite topics, right. like not in that order. Um, the more uncomfortable he seemed. Like any time he was asked to even like glancingly refer to policy. Um, he was clearly uncomfortable. Um, I mean, that said, like there weren't a lot of times that he had to do that. You know, um, <laughs> it wasn't nor, super, nor did anybody. super substantive debate. <laughs> so, I mean, he was like that. He was he was the center of like most questions. Um, and, and we can we can we can sort of bracket like how terribly the debate was sort of you know the format and structure of the debate, um, and, and mainly just focus on Trump. I do think. I mean. They all look hot and sweaty. I mean, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm surprised they don't believe in climate change still. Um, <laughs> but um, he, he seemed especially uncomfortable. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge Carly Fiorina fan, but he definitely, like, whiffed, um, you know, his chance on looking like any, even looking like himself. Um, in his interplay with her. Like, his whole, like, she's beautiful. I mean, I guess that's oh, kind of a dumb he didn't land. I guess it's kind of a Donald Trump thing to say, but it like landed almost as badly as his high five with Ben Carson. Oh, those were awful. It was he was like <laughs> reaching over and trying to touch him. It was bizarre. It was very strange. <laughs> yeah, his his energy was highest at the beginning when he called Rand Paul ugly, and it went yep. down from there. He, <laughs> the air was. I, I agree. It was leaking out of his hair balloon. What a great moment that was too, because the question was, "Hey, do you think this guy belongs?" holding a nuclear codes, and his response was to call Rand Paul, you know, a dorky-looking, ugly mug. It's like, it was like, okay, well, let's get back on topic, the topic you're proving to be probably right for having asked. Something in the debate actually upset me, which I did not expect. It was toward yeah. the end. So these guys come out there with these highfalutin game plans to attack Donald Trump and knock him off his block and begin his downfall, and they have all these set pieces in material lines that they'd come up with late at night. And so Donald Trump starts spewing this insane gibberish about vaccines causing autism. 
And I don't know if these guys were tired or what, but you could not ask for an easier opportunity to tell Donald Trump that he's a jerk and a liar and a buffoon and that he should shut up and get lost. And Jake Tapper begs Ben Carson to say something. Random and, and I would pipes up. Go ahead. Well, I would say that, that that's on that's on. I mean, Tapper as much as anyone else. I mean, like that was a horrible moment. I, it upset me as well. Um, I think um, CNN was irresponsible to even bring that up um, because I don't know. I mean, I did a column about this a, a while back, but on um, Public Opinion, Yale has has a center that studies how media and science and public opinion interact and everything that they've done shows if you even talk about the vaccine debate you give you give it creep good lord you know so, so all the, like, any of, of these guys could have said something and none of them did they're chicken and, and none of them did and also i would say they've all failed the commander-in-chief test with that you know because they have like literally made america like less safe <laughs> by <laughs> not like coming like by not coming out with like a one sentence thing about saying vaccines are safe and your children should get them. And where is the fallout? Because in September of 2011, Michelle Bachman said weird stuff about the HPV vaccine, which is not even, uh, you know, as far as vaccines go, I guess you could say it's an, it's a newer one. People are less familiar with it. And she said phony nonsense about it. It's only controversial because people think it's an invitation to have sex. To okay, so I, it's, yeah. it's, it's not even measles and mumps is my only point. And she talked about that vaccine, and it was the absolute end of her campaign. And that's not going to happen this time. And I don't get why that is. I think there's hope it might happen. I mean, I think people were pretty upset about that. I do, I do think, I think of anything that hurt Ben Carson some, because I mean, I think he, because he also, you're right, like he was sort of invited to like use his expertise <laughs> to slap down Donald Trump and he didn't do it. Like the one thing we can all agree he's probably good at, which is being a doctor, <laughs> you know, like he didn't even like call upon that expertise. You make a great point because that was the moment where, his affable charm totally failed him. Right. He drove too hard into the magnanimity of his public persona and failed to, like, actually reveal his expertise on the matter in a meaningful way. Yeah, you guys are fired. It may be... (laughs) You know, I hate to be cynical about this, but it may be that Ben Carson probably doesn't want to alienate any set of voters, including crazy ones. That's maybe me thinking too much about this uh but but um i wanted to uh you mentioned uh carly fiorina i think that the basic consensus is that she won last night uh yes uh is it enough to just be strong and facing down donald trump because if my theory is correct and he starts to fade from the scene where does carly fiorina go from there she's been kind of like noun verb hillary clinton for a long time and has taken the sort of you know brunt of of criticism for for not being able to live outside of Hillary Clinton's shadow. Where does Carly go from here? I mean, let's not. I mean, I think she'll get a bump out of this for sure. I mean, she had a great moment with Trump. Um, people who are ignorant about the Planned Parenthood videos also apparently really liked her Planned Parenthood answer. So right. for the audience that she's talking to, she did really well. Um, but let's not forget what, uh, can I use foul language on this? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I encourage you. Let's not forget the incredibly shitty campaign she ran for senator. Like this, I mean, like, and maybe she learned from it, but that wasn't just like a bad campaign in terms of like messaging, like the demon, she- it produced the, the demon, demon sheep. sheep ad. 
Um, but it was a terrible campaign in terms of like the management of it. Like apparently there are still staffers that haven't gotten paid, you know, so I'm not convinced. And, and then if you look at her HP career, I'm not convinced she can run a competent campaign, you know, so there is, and there is a, there is a point at which the rubber is going to hit the road on all this. And like when people talk to me about Donald Trump, I say this too, like at some point people have to go vote for these guys. Like they have to actually tr- call, being called by a po- proactively called by a pollster um, is different than having to like leave your house, you know, through the sleet and snow and having to go to a polling place and actually vote for somebody and, and or actually volunteer from some, for somebody. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that she can actually do that part of it. Um, her campaign can do that part of it. Um, and also like, I mean, I don't know, like I don't, she is kind of noun verb, you know, Hillary Clinton and now she's noun verb Donald Trump. And you're right. I mean, I think he's going to eventually kind of deflate. Um, we, we all heard the air hissing out last night. Um, and, and I'm not sure what she brings besides like, you know, she's, I mean, I, I, there's been a lot of talk this cycle and I think it's really correct about the conservative movement sort of developing its own like, um, kind of, uh, affirmative, not only say affirmative action culture, but like victimization, like white identity politics culture. And in a weird way, like Carson and Fiorina are a product of that white male identity politics culture. So like they're, they're, they're privileged. Like they, people see their race and gender and think like, Oh, well that's the answer because everybody's talking about identity politics. So it must be the answer that we run a woman or must be the answer that we run a black person. And, and I think that will fall apart. Just going back to 2012, (laughs) we've seen the pattern and we should brace ourselves to be unimpressed by whoever next occupies the Trump space. Because it's it's a carousel. Here's a question that I've been asking people. All, I asked all last night, uh, but uh, right now we have this sort of like two tiered debate thing where there's like an upper tier and a lower tier. And Donald Trump made a good point. There should have only been ten people on the stage last night, not eleven. CNN gave. I don't think it was necessarily Rand Paul. It may have been Chris Christie. Gave one of them a break. After last night, is there a candidate who deserves to drop? out of the top 10 and not be in any more debates. Why are there, why are there even 10 or 11 people? Like that's (laughs) my question. Like, why don't they make the top one, the top four and the bottom one, the bottom like 14 or why, why did these four guys get so much space to themselves? (laughs) It should be, you get punished for being at the bottom. It should be, you lose some kind of like advantage in a debate by being at the bottom of the poll. You know, yeah, and like, so why aren't they like playing? Like, it should be like you know, all the all the low seeds play each other at the bottom. That's and a good point. You, <laughs> I've I've, then, I've suggested a system it, where uh, the top four candidates get a bye week. They don't compete in the next debate. Uh-huh. They don't need it. And then we see who makes that out of the other one. I thought Rand Paul did have a shining moment where he was talking about the stupidity of marijuana criminalization, and then and then Chris was like Chris Christie wants to put you in jail. Jeb Bush will put you in jail. That was remarkable. And I thought Chris Christie performed poorly with his shtick of constantly saying, no, turn the camera around and look at you. This is about you. Hey, I don't think we should talk about what we're talking about. We should talk about something else. And then he didn't say what we should talk about instead. (laughs) Talk about me mainly. I think he could, I think we could get rid of him, but of course I'm not in charge. Well, I mean, again, like, I think that there's an argument just like it should be the top four through the prime time because they get that way. They get the space and the, you know, sort of luxury of being able to talk about actual issues if anyone asks about issues. Um, 
And then you have like the bottom like 12 or whatever crowding out each other. I'm, I'm like guessing at how many are there left. Like I don't even know anymore. Um, uh, crowding out each other at some hot and sweaty like undercard debate. But you know, the other thing like we haven't gotten to yet, but Senate issues, you sort of brought it up talking about uh, marijuana. Um, we kind of talked about it with the, with the vaccine thing, which is that one huge problem with this debate, and this is a constant of media criticism in the modern age, but it really was obvious last night, is that the problem with a lot of these answers was that they were the question just was based on a, a faulty premise. The, the question took as fact, like some idiot controversy or some non-existent problem, and then asked the candidates about it. Yeah. It was strange like, that Jake Tapper was like, Hey Ben Carson, here's what this other person said about you. Now you talk to him. Yeah, it was very, <laughs> very unusual. Weird. And like, okay, so that was like about Ben Carson's idiotic tithing plan, you yeah. know, um, a tithing tax plan. Which you know, the, the, the question you should have been asked was, if we implement your plan, we'll have a three trillion dollar shortfall <laughs> in the current budget. So <laughs> what would you do about that? <laughs> Uh, what I, I did appreciate how Jake Tapper uh, very declaratively said whenever someone failed to answer a question. Well, it, it, there are times where he missed. There were a few times where he missed it, but yeah, he did. Um, Scott Walker, I don't think, ever answered the question he was asked. Um, he actually had the howler of the night, Scott Walker, because his line with Donald Trump was, America doesn't need an apprentice. And I was like, okay, but you've watched the show, right? You know you know, Donald Trump's not the apprentice. <laughs> Gary Busey's the apprentice. <laughs> Gary Busey isn't running for president. We'll cross that bridge if we ever come to it. But Scott Walker, like, you've got to pay attention to one thing and demonstrate you've mastered one thing. That was a, yeah. a great example of material that Scott Walker or his consigliaries thought of while lying in bed late at night and like <laughs> rolled over and wrote it down and then went back to sleep smiling like, we're going to get him. Right. That was a terrible moment. You're right. And like just speaking of Scott Walker, we may not need to speak of him again. I mean, like, you know, as I think, Jason, you know, I've been saying this for the past year, which is that I think his candidacy has always been overrated. He's like not even an empty suit. He's like a, a, you know a, a suit stuffed with wet noodles or something. Like I mean, he's, <laughs> he's as boring as Wisconsin can be, um, and that's pretty boring. Um, and I think that he obviously we you know, like he was one of the milk carton kids. You know, last night. I mean. Just, <laughs> We were, you know, could wait, did he go play some Scrabble backstage with <laughs> with Marco Rubio at one point? Like <laughs> he was completely, you know, MIA, and that's like the, his best moments were when the camera was not on him. Yeah, yeah definitely like, true. All right, well, Anna Marie, thank you for joining us. Thanks for talking about this. Please come back on uh, because of I think there's going to be one or two more debates. <laughs> it's going to be like 20 more debates. 20 more debates. <laughs> hey, business owners, there's never a bad time to be on the lookout for the best possible candidate for your job, whether you're trying to add to your staff or expand your business. When you're short staff, there's no time to deal with the Byzantine wilderness of job sites, endlessly places to go. Ah, it's terrible. But there's help. ZipRecruiter.com. 
With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100 job sites with just one click. Just post once within 24 hours. You'll watch your candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. Plus, you'll be instantly matched with candidates from over 4 million resumes. You can try it right now for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash happen. Try ZipRecruiter for free. Get your perfect candidate before they go to somebody else. ZipRecruiter.com slash happen. Once again, ZipRecruiter.com slash happen. Find your next employee and get the edge on your competitors. Hey, we're back. And now we're back with two of our favoriteest people at the Huffington Post. Uh, we have Charlie <laughs> raising her hands in the air. Thanks for the exuberance. Julia Craven. Hi. Hi, Julia. <laughs> and our, our boss, uh, Bureau Chief Ryan Grimm. Hi. So, okay, we the 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 GOP debate, you know, is such a sugar rush of of emotion and confusion. Uh, well, now we can sort of like sit back and and talk about it, like with the clear light of day, balefully staring through our windows at us. Um, the general sense last night was that Carly Fiorina was the big winner of the debate. So I'd like to pose a question. So fucking what? The 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 stakes for Carly Fiorina were really, to a large extent, synthetic stakes. They were how would she face down Donald Trump? Pure soap opera stuff. Nothing that really resonated with what the American people are going through right now. Because obviously there's no you know policy outcome that happens just because Carly Fiorina uh, went at Donald Trump well or not. And it was just like the start of like a lot of things that were kind of synthetic about this debate. A lot of questions that started with bad priors, a lot of answers that start, that began with bad priors. Fiorina in particular purports to have seen a Planned Parenthood video that apparently uh, um, maybe only exists in her fevered imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just talking uh, in an earlier segment about the um, the uh, vaccination question and how it's being evaluated today is like, oh, how did they handle the politics of it when really it was like shitty information that a reporter should have been able to say, well, that's shitty information. Coming from a famed <laughs> doctor. <clears throat> so, yeah, exactly. So And Rand Paul. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so uh, what, do, do you think that, do you think there's a lot, anything about last night's debate that like survives the, the synthetic scrutiny test? Well, I don't think that uh, Carly actually did win, but that, right. but that doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that the media believe that she did win. Right. So what they're going to do in response to that belief that they have professed is that they're going to give her a lot more attention. So we almost got through the debate last night without that quintessential Jeff Zucker, I'm a complete dipshit moment where they ask a question <laughs> that really has no bearing on anything. Uh, they were they're thick uh, election cycle ago. We learned about what pizza preferences <laughs> like. Last night we learned, what do you want for your Secret Service name? Or, and uh, I forget the other dumb question because I really was just like, oh, okay, this is the part of the debate where I tune out and like throw well, this <laughs> in, that, in that period, they did the who do you want on the bill, which was dumb. But then yeah. it turned yeah. out not to be dumb because you wound up getting all these revealing answers that all of these Republican men, the only women they can name are either foreigners or family members. <laughs> my mom, mom, my daughter, my wife, Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. I couldn't believe that Bush's answer Susan was Margaret Thatcher. I was like, you would put a foreign woman on our fucking money. Let's let's not let's not even talk about that. Okay, I'll concede that maybe that 
that money question was revealing. But these questions do create opportunity costs. What could we have learned last night that we didn't? We could have gotten a better grasp of where they stand on voting rights. Yeah, there was nothing on voting. Well, yeah. I mean, presumably they, they, they believe in the sort of like, you know, radical, like, uh, new poll tax, new poll test system that seems to be bubbling Grandfather up. Grandfather test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but they, no one, they were never put on their spot for voting rights. Right. Uh, and what's what's funny is that they've all had opinions on it in the past. I think that Scott Walker has had ample opportunity to uh, to manipulate the way his state votes, uh, and no one no one bothered bringing it up. It wasn't really a, it, it, in that sense. It wasn't a national debate. It wasn't. Uh, and, and I think Jake Tapper did did this on purpose. He didn't he didn't make it about what does the entire country care about. He did it very much within the frame of the of the Republican primary. It's like what this is what Republican primary voters care about, and we're going to stick tightly within these confines. And so Black Lives Matter and voting rights and other things that Republican primary voters simply don't care about uh, just didn't come up. Uh, he had to like bring in George Shultz to even talk about climate change because. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they you know they didn't they didn't want to talk about that either. The, the, the real opportunity cost three hours. You could you could read most of a book in three hours. I could have taken a nap. You could have taken a nap. I think John Kasich did take a nap. Yes. <laughs> the next debate. What would you want to see out of that? I want more commercial breaks, um, and I don't want it to be as <laughs> long. True. We do need breaks. Last night I was talking with uh, Ali Watkins and Akbar Ahmed, uh, and. Uh, they, I think, I think they have they have a reason to be biased towards this, but they, <laughs> they, they argue they made the argument that this could turn into a real foreign policy election. Uh, do you think that we're bound now for uh, a series of uh, you know foreign policy battles between Republicans with each other? Do you think we end up in a in a in a in a fight between the Democratic nominee and Republican nominee on? Projecting power? No, not not te- not too, not too much. Because I mean, I think the re- Republicans mostly all agree that war is the answer. More war, more strength is the answer. There was and a lot of diversity the, of opinion on that, though, it, last night. It seems more that the diversity is on how familiar people are with the, the various conflicts and and leaders and regions, and that uh, scoring points is more about showing that you can demonstrate some knowledge about the situation rather than. Whether or not you're right about the situation, yeah. you know, punish it. Well, you know, he's he he knew the name of that guy. Uh, <laughs> so you know, it's an extremely low bar. One last question. Uh, I don't know if I asked you this last night. <laughs> who who from the eleven, the top eleven, uh, is down in the little kids debate next time around? Well, I don't think I there isn't another one till what November, I think, and so I don't think that we'll even have a kids table by then. Um, God willing, but God let's willing. just go with <laughs> Inshallah. Let us. Uh, I think. I think Scott Walker's goose is is cooked. Yeah. I think he, yeah. I think he's done. Um, like who? Who else? I mean, Huck, Huckabee is hanging on just because he knows he's going to do well in Iowa, but he's that's not that's not particularly serious. Uh, Rand Paul, you know, what does he have left? What a decline. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, I mean, he. he was supposed to be the one that was going to build on his father's support, and none of his father's supporters are even sticking with him. Yeah, he's he's, uh, he's Kasich, eroded. Uh, after a terrific first debate performance, you know, really fell asleep last night. Uh, so he, you know, he went from the kind of dark horse establishment guy to like, uh, so he's he's in a lot of trouble too. 
You know, you want to feed your mind with the best of what's out there. But time is so precious. Who has the time to sit down and sift through things for hours? For those- Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Those of us who want premium content but don't want to waste our lives finding it, there's Next Issue. Next Issue is the mobile app that lets you tap directly in to the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. These are iconic magazines like People, Vogue, Esquire, Time, and more. Next Issue lets you dive deeper into the story with content that brings your mobile device to life. Interactive content that allows you a richer reading experience than you would just by turning pages. You should sign up for Next Issue right now. You'll get immediate access to all of the top magazines, including back issues and exclusive videos and photos. I like to keep up with Entertainment Weekly. It's a magazine that tells me what I'm missing when I'm at work and what I can do when I have those few precious hours to read a book, watch something on TV. Next Issue allows me to seamlessly read that week's issue, get right into it, and find what I'm looking for quickly. The best part, Next Issue is offering a free trial right now. Just go to nextissue.com slash happen. Try it for free. Nextissue.com slash happen. Start tapping in directly to the content you want when you want it. And we are back. And once again, we're joined by Arthur Delaney and coming to us by a phone. One of the good, one of the great ones. Uh, you have read his work at, at New York Magazine. He's the author of the most, his most recent book is called Young Money. Uh, it followed uh, uh, several Ivy League graduates making their first foray working for Wall Street. But today we're going to be talking about his first book, uh, joining us. The news director from Fusion, Kevin Roos, ladies and gentlemen. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. So just to set up why why I thought it'd be great to talk to you today, um, this week, one of the big newsmaking events that happened outside of perhaps the GOP debate was Bernie Sanders, avowed socialist, avowed liberal, um, made an appearance uh, at a convocation at Liberty University, the uh, evangelical Christian school founded by Jerry Falwell in Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, for those of, those of you in the audience who may not know this, uh, Kevin's first book is called The Unlikely Disciple. Uh, he, Kevin, you went from Brown University uh, to spend a, a, a semester at Liberty uh, just out of pure curiosity. Um, and so I thought it'd be great to have you on because I think the media has been kind of characterizing this kind of like, you know, in a two-dimensional way, Bernie Sanders, stranger in a strange land, 
Uh, but I, I feel like perhaps there's a significance to this event that 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 took place that maybe we we're missing because we think about uh, evangelical Christians and especially those who are or who, who live a life of you know uh, evangelical teaching at a religious college. I think there might be a dimension we're missing. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I I spent just one semester at Liberty. I'm not. <laughs> Um, an expert, but I did live there and take classes and study under Jerry Falwell, and I did this as sort of a stunt for my first book. It was sort of my, my instead of going abroad for a semester, I, uh, I went undercover at Christian school. And so I'm, I'm sort of familiar with what's going on there, and I, I think that part of the context that's missing in a lot of these discussions is that Places like Liberty are not sort of like monoliths, like they are not just collections of political beliefs that are sort of homogenous and, um, and sort of unwavering. Like there's, it's a huge school, first of all. It's got uh, over 15,000 students on campus, and it's the largest um, not-for-profit university in America. Like it's enormous. And so with any institution that large, there's going to be sort of you know, dense in the orthodoxy. There are going to be diverse opinions. There are going to be people who disagree with each other. And I think the sort of larger narrative that is we sort of have to slot the Bernie Sanders speech into is that liberty, like most institutions affiliated with the sort of conservative evangelical church, has been going through this very slow, very gradual liberalization over the last decade or so. Um, it's Young evangelicals are not as conservative and staunch as their parents' generation. They don't vote along um, totally partisan lines on issues like gay marriage and abortion. And even at Liberty, which is still one of the more conservative colleges in America, like there are Democrats. You know, there are people who might conceivably agree with Bernie Sanders on some things. There aren't many of them, but I imagine that that there's just as much diversity at liberty as as there would be at sort of a, a left-wing um, equivalent. And I think that, you know, we have to sort of take that into consideration when we're talking about what is admittedly a pretty strange place for Bernie Sanders to give a speech. Well, now, liberty is a place where Republican presidential candidates always stop by. So how how strange is it for Bernie Sanders to go there? He's already a strange candidate. Totally. I mean, you know, it's been a sort of breeding ground and a, and a sort of uh, place for GOP candidates to, to sort of kiss the ring for, you know, ever since Ronald Reagan, uh, essentially. It's been, used to say that the road to the White House led through Lynchburg. And I think that's still true to a large extent for Republicans. But even when Jerry Falwell Sr. was alive, his son Jerry Falwell Jr. now runs the school. Um, but even when Jerry Falwell Sr. was alive, he would bring people like Ted Kennedy to speak on campus. I mean, he always valued bringing liberals and people with whom he disagreed to speak to his students because it, it you know, there's a saying in the church that, like, you know, um, te- you know untested faith is no faith at all. Like, you, in order to, to become faithful and... and um, you know, have the right attitude toward your faith, you actually have to, like, test that by exposing it to alternate views. And so, um, you know, from all reports, like, Liberty students were incredibly friendly to Bernie Sanders. It wasn't, you know, he didn't get shouted down. There were no trigger warnings. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I, re- I really think, like, in, in a lot of ways, 
liberty students are more used to having their views tested than students at many schools. Yeah, I can see that. Um, let's. Do you think having have I, I think I think you're right to state right at the beginning that Liberty University is not uh, monolithic. I, I don't think people can be blamed for maybe thinking it so because Jerry Falwell for a, for a long period of time occupied this very significant space uh, in our in our political culture and our, our cultural in general and was charismatic enough uh, a figure at one time. Uh, to, to, that we could all walk away with the impression that he was capable of, like perhaps establishing an institution that remained very steadfast in its monolithic nature. But I think we saw when Ted Cruz was there that there were a lot of gradations among the students. But but what uh, at the risk of at the risk of like suggesting that there is a typical Liberty student. Uh, what kind of what kind of interaction would uh, would a typical Liberty student have with the kind of political brief that Sanders brings into the room? Are there parts of his message that resonate more than others? Are there parts that are rejected out of hand? Is there uh, perhaps an opportunity for a you know a, a, some kind of closeness down the line? Sure, I mean I think that the the parts that resonate um, for evangelicals and what he's saying are the that are sort of about economic justice and, um, you know, lifting up the impoverished. I mean, there's been a social justice plank in the evangelical platform for many, many years, even though they wouldn't call it that. I mean, uh, Christians have long been doing missionary work overseas. They've long been concerned about poverty. It's very biblical to be concerned about poverty. And I think that, you know, when you, if you just took that part out of Bernie Sanders' message and presented it to the students at Liberty as if from their own professors or their own pastors, like, it would be pretty uncontroversial. Like, we need to, you know, help people out of poverty. We need programs that will, you know, restore a sense of economic fairness. Like, that's not the controversial part. I think where it gets dicey for them is around the sort of litmus test issues on you know, gay marriage, abortion, which, although they don't have the same sway that they might have in the 90s for Liberty students, like, still I think a large chunk of them would disagree with Sanders on that. Yeah, there was a report that the speaker right after Sanders made an anti-abortion comment that was loudly applauded. Um, So Bernie Sanders is said to draw his his, uh, support from this amorphous, non-elite group of Americans who are disaffected with the establishment and are more populist. Are you saying that that sounds like something that flies at Liberty University? I think so. I mean, I think that in particular, like, it's the, um, you know, I think that, that the sort of evangelical base, um, the, the sort of union between the elite wing of the Republican Party, the sort of Rockefeller wing, and the evangelical base has always been pretty tenuous. Like, that never made a whole bunch of sense. Uh, even, you know, though Jerry Falwell was arguably one of the people who sort of drove that union in the first place in, in the 80s with Ronald Reagan. Um, but I think we're starting to see that fracture a little bit. And I think, like, the, you know, the, the sort of predictions about the, you know, the death of the evangelical right have been going on for years, and we haven't seen it, you know, in, in many ways yet. But I do think, like, it's, it's pretty compelling when someone like Bernie Sanders or someone like Hillary Clinton is talking about sort of the the links between sort of biblical, um, you know, orthodoxy and, you know, anti-poverty programs, for example. Like, I think that resonates for people even if they don't identify with the rest of the platform. 
You know, it's weird. It's kind of in keeping with this idea that uh, Bernie Sanders uh, perhaps doesn't operate every single day, every single minute. His minute-to-minute action as a campaigner isn't always focused on getting elected president, but rather sort of establishing a sort of beachhead for policy change. Um, is is someone who's a bit more in the campaign mode, like Hillary Clinton, could could she pull off going to Liberty? Should she think about going to Liberty and like taking this message to, a you know, the, the whole find love in a hopeless place type of situation? Uh, I mean, I don't think I think it would be tougher for her than than Liberty. Like, I think they, you know, it would be it would be that'd be a real minefield for her. I mean, what do you, you know, you, nobody wants to have the the sort of clip that circulates on the internet be you know them getting booed by you know evangelical students like that that wouldn't serve her well at all. But I think if she could do it in a way that was respectful, that was not um, you know that was sort of less. Um, less about sort of direct confrontation than about bridge building and finding common ground. I just think it's hard when you're sort of a major establishment candidate to do the kind of concession work that is necessary to to do that bridge building. To say like, yeah, you guys are right on issues A, B, and C. You're I, you know you're wrong on the rest, but let's focus on the ones that that we can agree on and really try to establish some common rhetoric there. Like that's hard to do. All right. Well, I want to encourage people to go out and and read Kevin's book. This first book's called The Unlikely Disciple. It's about his time at Liberty. Second book uh, is called Young Money. Uh, Kevin uh, uh, treats his subjects with real humaneness, and your your work is really great uh, and um, and a really great example to reporters and writers out there. Uh, so we want to thank you for coming on the show. It's really great to have you on. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. No problem, man. You earned it. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back right now. We're back with Tim Carney, reporter, a columnist, rather. Well, reporter, columnist for the Washington Examiner, visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, one of this town's go-to guys on lobbying, influence peddling, but today we got Tim roped in to do something a little bit different, and I'll let Arthur Delaney explain what we got going on today for you. It's because the Pope is coming to town, and unlike most popes, this Pope is a huge liberal. From income inequality to gay marriage, he has sounded much more like a Democrat than a Republican. And Tim Carney has written a great, long, reported story. See, I was right to call him a reporter. Not yeah. just he's, you know, he's not like these, like some hacks. No. At all. He's a reporter. And it, this piece explained why the Pope doesn't fit the left-right paradigm 
of U.S. politics, despite what you may have heard in the news. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about this story. Well, yeah, so the, the Pope is coming, and we tend to see, you know, is he more like Nancy Pelosi or more like John Boehner? And that's the wrong way to look at him. First of all, he's a sort of pastor to a church of the whole world. Most Catholics, 96% of Catholics or 94% of Catholics live outside of the United States. 95% of the world population lives outside of the United States. The fastest growing part of the church is in Africa. So that's the first part, is that he's not always talking to you. Um, I, I think one of the, the sub headlines in my first draft of my examiner piece was, you're so vain, you probably think this homily is about you. <laughs> um, b- but also, just I think the way he looks at things, whether it's marriage or the poor, it's it's always from a more spiritual perspective, as you would expect. It's always from the perspective of a guy who spent his life sort of in the in the poor neighborhoods of, of Argentina. And it's not an American perspective, and it's not sort of a, an, a, even a European perspective, as the previous popes was. So I think he's widely misunderstood. And I think calling him a the liberal pope, while it has some elements of truth, it's usually vastly overblown by our friends in the in the mainstream media. But this pope, Pope Francis, seems really good at pushing the buttons on the environment, mm-hmm. on income inequality, yep. on gay marriage, even abortion and divorce. We have heard things yep. coming out of the Vatican that I don't think most people have heard before. And let's go through some of those. Tell us about what the Pope's getting at with income inequality. So here he says that inequality is bad and that one of the biggest things he talks about when he speaks on inequality, if you read through, he wrote something uh, not quite an encyclical called the Apostolic Exhortation. The name of it was Evangelii Gaudium. And what it did is when he spoke about income inequality there, he talked about it as sort of segregating uh, populations of the people, that we are separated from the poor and the poor are separated from us. So that if you're middle class, if you're wealthy, you might not live around the poor. And if you're poor, you might not know anybody who's middle class. Well, that that segregation is very harmful. Now, there's lots of economic reasons why economists have shown that, but also sort of in a spiritual way, the the wealthy and the middle class need the poor. And that's another aspect where he's very different from, I think, even a lot of liberals who care about the poor, where he says sort of the poor are a blessing on this earth. Kind of nobody in Washington talks that way. Conservatives largely ignore the poor, and the liberals just talk about throwing as much money at them as possible to make sure that they're try to make them not poor anymore. There's well, an argument to be made, actually, that liberals aren't very good at welcoming the poor into yeah. their neighborhoods. Yes. That everything's all well and good until your your nice uh, ritzy enclave wants to open a 7-Eleven. Yeah, but, and... Sorry, Archie. That, that kind of ec- economic segregation is a huge underappreciated story. Is the subject of Robert Putnam's book that mm-hmm. has gotten... And, and my AI colleague, Charles Murray, has, has spoken about that. And you mentioned the social issues, and if I can comment on that. Uh, the Pope has not softened any teaching on abortion. The Catholic Church is, is very clear on this, that uh, in the words of the Catechism, direct abortion is gravely contrary to the moral law. And the Pope has said, never, never does killing a person solve, resolve a problem, never. And even in Laudate Si, in the context of talking about the environment, he says, we, we can't, uh, quote, genu- genuinely teach the importance of concern for other vulnerable beings if we fail to protect a human embryo, even when its presence is uncomfortable and creates a difficulty. So now, the church has held up the Catholic teaching. Abortion is always evil. The catechism has a hard time getting into the news. But yes. there, there has been from the Vatican, a broadening of opportunities for forgiveness 
for women who have had abortions. This is, that seems like a, a big signal. It's, it's, I, I'm glad the Pope sent that signal because I'd like it to be driven home that the, the Catholic Church is about forgiveness. And that, that is what Christianity is ultimately about. It's about repentance and forgiveness. But it's actually been, I think, another thing grossly misrepresented by the press, that there's any sin is forgivable um, in Catholic teaching. Some sins are, are grave enough that you sort of, by committing them, excommunicate yourself. And in that case, it takes the bishop to sort of grant absolution there, but the bishop is allowed to delegate that authority down to a priest. In the U.S., every bishop has delegated the authority down to priests for forgiving abortions. If a woman uh, confesses it, is sorry that she's done it truly, then uh, her local priest in the confessional can grant that absolution. So the Pope didn't change anything about the way any priest or any woman in the U.S. acts. It's just he sort of codified it and spread it maybe to some bishops outside of the U.S. that don't have it. So it was more of a symbolic action and more about sort of emphasis and tone than about any actual church policy in the U.S., but that symbolic action, that emphasis and tone, that's important. And I think that's the biggest difference with this poll. Well, we've got Democrats and Republicans actually agree on 90 percent of the way this country is set up and the policies that we have. It, it seems important to me. It seems like emphasis is really everything. It, it, so it's, it's, it's important. And, and on, on, the, on the gay marriage stuff, where his famous thing, he said sort of, who am I to judge? Um, if you look at the substance of it, he's not saying gay marriage is okay or we're going to be okay with it. Actually, he's saying, again here, something that nobody in the U.S. says, that if you're gay, meaning if you have same-sex attraction, then, well, you know, th that's something that that's a, a difficulty you have to deal with. That's something that you shouldn't act on, just like all of us have all sorts of these temptations. And who am I to judge if you have if you have this thing? He's not saying gay relationships are okay. He was actually saying it in the context of priests who are gay. So we yeah. obviously don't allow priests to get married or to have uh, sexual relationships regardless of whom they're attracted to. So it was, again, this thing you're saying, who am I to judge you based on what your attractions are? So but the more interesting thing he said was sort of um, emphasizing the other part of it that conservative Catholics aren't good enough on is saying, like, we need to be more welcoming and loving to gay people. And that that was, again, that's not a new teaching. That's just something that hasn't been emphasized. So the Pope is aloof from our politics. He's, you know, he doesn't live here. He's not mm -hmm. running for president. But we do. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops does lobby. Yes. Uh, you know, they get and they get down in the weeds on things like food stamps, unemployment insurance. Mm -hmm. And on economic issues like those, they take reliably liberal p democratic yes. positions. And, and, they, 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 and people don't realize they always, that. They always have. And this is what, one of the ways I look at it is, uh, is this pope the liberal pope? If, you had, if the pope got to vote in Congress <laughs> uh, and they got a voting scorecard, that Francis would look like Benedict and John Paul. John Paul and Benedict would have been big liberals on economic issues and conser social conservatives, and Francis is a big liberal on economic issues and a social conservative. They might vote different on, like, waxman Markey climate change, but on all the other <laughs> issues, I think they basically line up the same. So is he a big liberal? In, in, the, in the floor speeches, he's giving <laughs> sort of yes, but in his actual votes, he's, he's basically in line with the, the, his predecessors. Big liberal on divorce. So this is a place where the church teaching, church policy might actually change, unlike abortion and gay marriage, where the church teaching is not going to change from Francis. On the question of annulment, which is where uh, you give your vows when you get married, and if you were 
drunk or high on cocaine when you gave your vows, obviously they wouldn't count. If you <laughs> right. thought if they if wait, you, wait, really? <laughs> Ooh, man. If, if you thought that you were if you thought that you were uh, this so you, can, you could be high at your wedding and get out of it afterward. You actually would have to do it again. It wouldn't oh, okay. it, it wouldn't count. If you thought that you were agreeing to something else and completely didn't understand what marriage was, then obviously your vow, it's it's a true expression of intent in your heart, then obviously it wouldn't count. And he's sort of broadening some of the idea of that aspect of annulment saying you you weren't ever married if you didn't understand marriage and you could imagine how that would lead to lots of wiggle room and make it very easy for Catholics to get divorced in in the church the point of getting divorced is not to move away from your husband or your wife you're always allowed to do that if it's problematic the point of getting divorced is so that you can get remarried so this is a place where he does look like he's pushing the church in a liberal direction not in any way that affects policy, divorce law in the U.S., but possibly in a way that affects church law and could affect in the long run marriage. Now, this will be our, our last thing. A great example in your column of the Pope scrambling American politics. We have conservative uh, Catholic Republican presidential candidates, Rick Santorum, confronted with the Pope's encyclical mm-hmm. on the environment. And and whereas you would have expected them to reliably be like, oh, yeah, let's do go with what the Pope said. They Rick Santorum says, well, let's let's have the Pope leave science to the scientists. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are issues on which the, the, the Pope is we're supposed to say he's he has infallibility, meaning that on 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 issues of, of moral issues and, and faith issues, you can't really argue with them. Climate change is not one of them, but you are, as a Catholic, supposed to sort of prayerfully consider what he says. And some of these Republican politicians, when asked about by about these issues by reporters, have sort of instead blown them off and sounded exactly like Democratic Catholics sound when they're asked about the Pope on abortion. So it's it's made an uncomfortable situation for Jeb Bush and Rick Santorum and some others. Infallibility. That word instantly made me think of Donald Trump. <laughs> Very true. He, he may be the most Catholic. Catholic of all the candidates. <laughs> I have. I just have one quick question. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it's really compelling to think about how when the Pope speaks, he's not really speaking to Americans, but he is coming to the United States. Yes. So what? What do you? What do you think? What do you think he wants? He's going to be signaling. What do you think he wants us to take away from his, his visit to the United States? So the, now we are in a conversation. Yeah, the the funny thing is that the the mass reading when he gives Sunday mass is a reading that was set years and years ahead of time. But it begins. I forget the exact words. One of, one of the Bible readings, not the gospel reading, but one of the New Testament readings begins with words something like, Oh, ye rich, lament your ways. And so he's speaking to the richest country in the world. I think he'll want to communicate something about our responsibility as a wealthy nation with such wealthy people, not to inequality necessarily within the U.S., but within the world community. Wait, so the, it was set years ago, but was his trip here set years ago? Did he want to come here and make and, and make that reading? I, you should do some investigative reporting inside the Vatican <laughs> and figure that out, Arthur. Infallibility, yo. Infallibility. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Adriana Ucero and Peter James Callahan, engineered by Brad Shannon, with technical assistance from Christine Canetta. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Anna Marie Cox, host of the Brouhaha podcast, the Washington Examiner columnist Tim Carney, and Fusion News Director Kevin Roos, along with Huffington Post reporters Arthur Delaney, Julia Craven, and Ryan Grimm. So That Happened was sponsored by ZipRecruiter.com and by NextIssue.com. 
Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash happen and NextIssue.com slash happen to find out what they can do for you. So that happen is available on iTunes. Please check us out in the iTunes store. And while you're there, look for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe. Tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.